Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 50. And this is the word of God for us this morning. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. I believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing, um, hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. The other said, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Will you pray with me? Father, you know the weight and import of this text. You know how desperate is our need to understand and we ask you to do a supernatural work in our midst that we might know, learn, change, repent, gain from you what you wish us to have. And our prayer is in the perfect name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So today we watch a horrible moment. And it un as it unfolds from the Word of God. And today we watch a beautiful moment as God moves 
to fulfill his purpose in creation in one of the single most important events in all of human history. I don't have an introduction for you. We pick up the story in Matthew chapter 27. We'll follow the pattern that we've been using over the past few weeks. We will identify a few different scenes as Matthew recounts the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. And as we witness those four scenes unfold, we'll make a set of seven observations inside them. Scene one, the first, it's the soldiers. Look at 27 to 31. We're just, like I said, jumping right in. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The time is somewhere before 9 a.m. on Friday morning. And Jesus has, since midnight the night before, gone through six trials in which laws were repeatedly broken. And repeatedly, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, has pronounced Jesus not guilty. Yet in the end, Pilate gave in to the mob's thirst for blood and he sentenced Jesus to death by crucifixion. Once the sentence was pronounced, the Roman soldiers who were billeted in Jerusalem decide to have a little bit of fun. This Jesus has been, in their understanding, pronounced guilty of declaring himself to be a rival king who opposes Caesar. Now, there was no truth in that claim. There was no evidence brought forth for that claim. But how would the soldiers know? All these men knew that here's another Jewish teacher claiming to have power, and he's been handed to them for execution. And so the soldiers, they get hold of Jesus in verse 27, but by that time, Jesus had already been physically brutalized. He had been repeatedly punched, slapped, spat upon during the night, the end of those religious trials especially. Pilate had also already ordered Jesus scourged. That was a brutal beating involving a whip of many strands. Not just one, but several strands came off this whip. And each of them was weighted, maybe with lead. And the strands would have attached to their ends pieces of sharp bone or stone or glass. Victims of scourging often died in the process. And those who lived through their scourgings had the skin flayed from their backs exposing muscle and bone. Well, the soldiers who get hold of Jesus here continue to brutalize Jesus, this time in a little mocking game they play. They strip him naked. Then they throw over that wounded back a cloak, probably an old soldier's cloak with a faded color that was somewhere around scarlet, maybe between scarlet and purple. And in the game that they're playing to mock Jesus, the cloak symbolizes a royal king's robe. To add insult to the injury, some of the soldiers found thorns, which is not a hard thing to do in Jerusalem. And one of them twists the thorns into a circlet that might loosely resemble a crown. 
And they shove those thorns roughly on Jesus' head and bring more blood streaming down his already battered face. You ever consider, by the way, that one of the curses back in Genesis chapter 3, one of the results of human sin was thorns? God told Adam part of the curse for him is that the ground will not produce crops easily, but it will bring forth what? Thorns. And as Jesus walks to the cross to defeat sin, it is no surprise that the devil would inspire rough men to try to hurt the Lord Jesus with the symbol of the very sin that Jesus is about to go destroy. Yeah, he will wear sin, but he will destroy it. Well, next the soldiers put a reed, I think a long hollow stick, in Jesus' hand to represent the king's royal scepter. And then they would make fun of Jesus. They would bow before Jesus and pretend to honor him as a king. Hail, king of the Jews. But then they would get up and punch him, slap him, hit him over the head on those thorns with the stick. Then once the soldiers were done mocking Jesus, they pulled the red cloak off of him put his own cloak back over his shoulders, and then they began to walk him toward the place of execution. But before we depart the scene, let's make one observation. Number one, evil men mock the truth. Evil men mock the truth. What's most ironic about the mockery of the soldiers is that in so many ways, though they didn't get it, their words were actually true. Jesus is king of the Jews. Jesus is the king above all kings. Jesus is the savior. Jesus deserves and he does now wear a real royal robe. Jesus sits on the real throne above all the universe. Jesus is crowned Lord of all. But what's also true throughout all of human history is that sinful people often mock the truth. College professors make fun of the notion that the world was created by God. Political pundits mock the idea that God might have a standard for marriage or sexuality or gender or justice. Dark-hearted people laugh at the idea that there's a God who will judge mankind, holding us accountable for our sin against him. Comedians in silly sketches make fun of Christian beliefs, Christian morality, even Christian kindness. But we must know that even though the world mocks, we will follow the trustworthy word of God. We shift scenes. And we watch the crucifixion. 32 to 38 read, As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. It was traditional for a condemned criminal to have to 
walk through the streets carrying his own cross. Oftentimes, they would put a sign around that criminal's neck that declares what he's guilty of, why he's going to his death. And even though the walk from the Roman fort to Calvary is not thought to be a super long walk, Jesus had been physically brutalized to such a point that he was unable to carry the cross physically. So the soldiers pull out from the crowd a man, his name was Simon, from the town of Cyrene. And we know almost nothing about him. He was a, someone in Jerusalem at this time, probably for the feast, passing through. But there are reasons to believe that his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, may well have been well known to the first century church in Rome. So perhaps, perhaps this scene, the carrying of the cross by their dad, this might have been a part of these young men coming to faith. Well, Simon would have carried the cross on Jesus' behalf to a place called Golgotha, which again is called the place of the skull. So if you can imagine the way you might say it, the procession goes on and they go to Skull Hill, the place of execution. And there Jesus would have been forced to lie on the ground with his arms stretched wide on the horizontal cross piece. Most likely they would have tied his hands to the wood to keep them from being able to move while they nailed him to the cross. And the Roman soldiers tried to get Jesus to drink a mixture of wine and, here Matthew says, gall, which gall is something really nasty and bitter. Mark tells us that it was myrrh that was in the wine part of the mixture. And that actually helps us understand what's going on here. Myrrh, which is, again, one of the gifts that the infant Jesus was given, or the toddler Jesus was given by the wise men, um, myrrh, when consumed, has a narcotic property, which can serve as a, something to put you into a stupor and dull your senses for a time. This was not offered to Jesus out of kindness or mercy, but it was offered so that the soldiers could keep him still without moving while they would drive nails through his wrists and his crossed ankles. Observation number two, by the way, from this. We've said it so many times. Jesus willingly suffered for us. Jesus willingly suffered for us. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly why Jesus refused that wine with myrrh, but I think there's a very likely theory here. Jesus knew that he, would, he could not let go of his senses for what was to come. The Savior had a job to do while on the cross, and Jesus would not have something come between him and what he was to do. He would not have something dull his senses. Jesus would not take to himself comfort. He would not hold himself back from fully suffering the wrath of God in every way. Jesus was about to drink the cup of the wrath of God down to the very last drop so that he could pay the price for every single sin God would ever forgive. Now, put your eyes on verse 35. It begins with, And when they had crucified him, Does anything stand out to you about that? Because what screams out to me is that the gospel writers do not describe this event. 
This is one of the single most important events in the history of the world, right? And, and all the writers tell us is what happens once it's done. They took Jesus to a place called Golgotha. They tried to give him wine that he wouldn't drink. And then once they had crucified him, they did other stuff. Observation for us here, number three. Scripture does not focus on the physical detail. In the crucifixion, Scripture does not focus on the physical detail. In many a sermon that I have heard preached on this passage, and I'm sure you too, preachers get deep into the medical facts and the gory details of a crucifixion. They highlight in minute detail the physical pain, the humiliation, the ugliness of the death of a criminal on a cross. Do you see the fact here, though, that God did not see fit to record any such information for you and me? Now, there's nothing wrong with you studying to find out what crucifixion was like. But we're not going to give that a whole lot of time here this morning. I would suggest to you that there are two reasons for why the Bible does not focus us on the medical details of the crucifixion, of the blood, of the gore. First, people of that era already knew what crucifixion was. Many people would have already seen crucified criminals at one point or another in their lives. And to the people of that century, crucifixion was considered to be so horrible that it was not a topic that you would write about, and it was not a topic you would even speak of in polite company. It was gruesome. And the second reason I would suggest, which I think is more important for you and me today, is this. The suffering of Jesus, while yes, physical, is not primarily physical. You can study scourging and crucifixion, and man, you will find gut-wrenching facts about the awful things that happen to a human body when nailed to a cross. But please realize this. What Jesus was about to go through spiritually was infinitely worse than anything he went through physically. Y'all... Other men in human history have been crucified. Others have been executed and abused in ways that are worse than you would ever want to hear described. But only one man in human history is the God-man who took upon himself the wrath of the Father for the sins of many. Once Jesus was nailed to the cross by the wrists, by the feet, the cross would have been stood upright. We don't even know if the vertical beam, the up and down beam was already there and they just had a cross piece to stick up there or if the whole device was dropped in a hole in the ground. We don't know how it worked. It seems, though, that each criminal probably had a group of four Roman soldiers around his cross overseeing his execution there was probably one centurion overseeing the whole affair. And Matthew tells us the soldiers who crucified Jesus, they divided up his clothing among himself, themselves. So the soldiers play another game. They gamble with something kind of like dice 
to determine who gets what part of Jesus' last earthly possessions. They particularly were gambling for a seamless tunic that Jesus owned, probably the only nice thing he had. And the set of four soldiers, then they would have just seated themselves on the ground around the cross. That way they could prevent anybody from running up to the cross and killing the man hanging there. Because see, a friend of a crucified man would think it a mercy to plunge a spear into his heart rather than let him suffer what he was physically suffering. Then a sign with the official charge was placed above Jesus' head. In this instance, there's no crime written on the sign. Just the statement that this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And it was written in three languages so everybody could read it no matter where they were from. By the way, observation one, remember, evil men are unwittingly telling the truth. It really is the King of the Jews. Even as they try to mock Jesus, they're telling the truth. There was a cross on Jesus' left, a cross on Jesus' right, and two criminals were put to death that day. These were, these were nasty men like Barabbas who had earned their death sentences for crimes they really committed. And that leads me to one more observation that we've needed to make for several verses now. Observation four, the crucifixion fulfills Scripture. The crucifixion fulfills Scripture. What's fascinating about the details that we see in the crucifixion is that so very many of the details we read were predicted by God in the Scripture long before they ever came to pass. For example, Psalm 22. Listen to just verses 16 through 18, which we read already this morning. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. Roman soldiers sitting around the cross. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That was written by David a thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus. Add to that, if you don't know, during the days of King David, nobody was crucifying people. That was not a practice. Thus, the piercing of hands and feet in the psalm, it's almost unimaginable. That is prophetic. Isaiah 53, verse 12, the prophet, writing about seven centuries before the crucifixion, predicts that the promised servant from God, the Messiah, is going to be numbered with the transgressors. Here's Jesus hanging on crosses between two criminals. I would recommend to you, by the way, as, as Resurrection Sunday and Good Friday, as, as these things approach, take some time to read for yourself Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. And you're going to see that just in those texts alone, we have such an accurate prediction of the sufferings of Jesus that it feels like an eyewitness is telling us what happened, not that a prophet was telling us what's going to happen 700 or 1,000 years later. And the Lord gave us these things. Why? He showed us that nothing here is happening outside of his ultimate perfect plan. God knew, God planned, God acted, God carried it through. Let's go to the next scene. Number three for the scenes is the mocking crowd. 
39 to 44 reads, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, with the scribes and elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So from nine in the morning when Jesus was crucified through around noon, the people in the area all take their shots, making fun of, mocking Jesus. And in this little section, we see Jesus ridiculed by the common people, by the religious leaders, and by the crucified criminals. It says the passers-by wag their heads at Jesus. That is them making the equivalent of an obscene gesture at him. And they have clearly heard the lie that the Jewish leaders spread about Jesus, that he threatened to destroy the temple and rebuild it. That came up during his trial, though Jesus never threatened to do such a thing. But most interesting from this group in my mind is their taunt, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Does, does that phrase, if you are the Son of God, does that ring in your ears from anything? That mirrors the temptation of Jesus by Satan in Matthew 4. Remember, the devil challenged Jesus twice in that chapter. If you're the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. If you're the Son of God, leap from the edge of the temple to prove to people that you are. And here at the crucifixion, the same devil is still trying to tempt Jesus not to complete the work that he came to do in the way that the Father and the Son had determined from all time past to do it. Now, the chief priests are a little more dignified, I suppose. They're not making obscene gestures. They're talking to each other. Although, they look like a cluster of nasty, like, middle school girls because they're saying nasty things about Jesus, but loud enough for everybody to hear, as if they're saying it to each other. They say he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. Uh, remember the first observation? Evil men mock the truth. They think they're making fun of Jesus, but really they are speaking truth again. Jesus really did save others. And Jesus cannot save himself if he's going to save the people he came to save. And Jesus really is the king, though they cannot imagine how. But there is a lie in their words because these men would never believe in Jesus, even if he came down from the cross. Jesus has been doing miracle after miracle in their sight. 
They know it's genuine. These men, better than any human beings on earth at that time, know the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus has already fulfilled and is currently fulfilling. Their unbelief has nothing to do with a lack of evidence. This is a major observation. Number five, unbelief is a rejection of God, not a lack of evidence. Unbelief is a rejection of God, not a lack of evidence. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells us the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You guys remember that? Now, I, I don't even know whether that is more parable or it's a teaching tool he uses, and I don't know how literal and how parabolic it is. It's a tough one to interpret, but either way, it doesn't matter. He uses the rich man and Lazarus to teach us. And part of the teaching, if you remember, the rich man in hell begs that Lazarus from paradise be sent back to warn the rich man's brothers to repent before they too end up in hell. You remember that? And Abraham, in the story as well, speaks to the rich man and says, Hey, your brothers have scripture and that's enough. Remember? They've got Moses and the prophets. But the rich man in hell, no, Abraham, no. But if, but if somebody would come back from the dead, they would repent. The word of God is not enough. They need to see more evidence and then they would buy it. Do you remember how that story ends? In Luke 16, 31, we read, He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Do you hear the weight of that, friends? Seeing a miracle will not make you believe. Paul tells the Romans, evidence has never been the issue when it comes to unbelief. In Romans 1, 18-20, listen to these words. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The Bible talks about unbelief as a suppression of the truth. But listen to John 8, 42 and 47. Here's Jesus talking to the religious. Verse 42 says, And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. Then in verse 47 he says, Whoever is of God 
Here's the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Why did the religious not believe? They were hard-hearted. They were not children of God. God had not opened their eyes to believe. And it has nothing to do with evidence or persuasion. It has everything to do with the fact that these sinful men had hearts that were dead set against God. Do you remember not believing, by the way? Some of you do, some of you don't. But when we did not believe, why did we not? And if you still do not believe, why not? What's the Bible say is the issue? Listen to, listen to Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. And listen carefully. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, Ephesians 4, 17, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That's him talking about lost people. In the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is hard, friends. But I really do want you to take this seriously. If you are not a follower of Jesus, God's word says this has nothing to do with evidence or argument. It has everything to do with your heart. You need to admit the truth to yourself. You need to admit the truth to God. If you're not following God, it's because you don't want to. It's not because God hasn't done enough to prove something to you. Now, Christians don't get smug. If you do follow God, it's because God did a miracle in your heart. Verse 43 of Matthew 27, the religious also say, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. Here they're quoting scripture, whether they realize it or not. Observation number four, the crucifixion fulfills scripture. Psalm 22, listen to this, verses 6 through 8. And I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Notice that phrase is even there. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he desires him. That's Psalm 22, 8. Jesus is on the cross, fulfilling the promises of God, even as the crowds, the religious leaders, and even the criminals, verse 44, mock him. Fourth scene, last scene. Here we'll see the death of Jesus. 45 through 50. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. 
And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. From around noon until 3 p.m. that Friday, the sky over the land grew dark. This is a supernatural occurrence. No natural phenomenon could explain this perfectly. For example, we know this was not a solar eclipse. No matter what year the crucifixion took place in, how do we know? Passover happens during full moon. A solar eclipse cannot happen during a full moon. This was something else. In this instance, God is turning out the lights for his own purposes. And he's giving us a picture that something very dark is happening. What is it? Jesus, God the Son, during this time of darkness, is taking upon himself the wrath of God for the sins of others. Jesus is receiving in himself a level of suffering equal to an eternity in hell for every sin God will ever forgive. God is carrying out perfect justice, perfectly punishing every sin that would have ever gone unpunished without Jesus' perfect sacrifice. That way God can both forgive and be just. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first line of Psalm 22. Jesus is right there pointing us to the words of the psalm, which is predicting exactly what's happening. Observation four, he fulfills scripture. And Jesus is really sincerely crying out to his father in utter desolation. Jesus, who has only known perfect fellowship with God the Father, with his Father for eternity, finds himself at that moment being treated by his Father as an enemy. All the hatred God has for your sin and mine, and for all the sins he will ever forgive, all the way God hates every sin that ever is going to be forgiven. Think of your worst how much must God hate it? How much hell did it deserve? All the anger God has for the worst thing you've ever done, ever thought, ever been, God is punishing Jesus for that as if he were you in your sin. No, Jesus doesn't stop being God the Son. But in this moment, all fellowship with the Father is cut off as the Father punishes our sin by punishing Jesus in our place. 
But what does Jesus still call the Father? My God. My God. He knows that the relationship is not permanently severed. He knows what he's doing. But you and I simply cannot imagine the loss that Jesus felt. For eternity past, he and his Father were in a loving fellowship that brings them infinite joy. Now, in a dark moment, the Son is cut off from an eternity of infinite joy and receives on himself the infinite wrath of God. Jesus is going through hell. Not the way that you, you weak, weak people, and me, weak, weak man, use that word. Oh, it's hell on earth. What fools we are to ever say anything like that. Jesus is going through hell. The hell you deserve, I deserve, while hanging on that cross. And when the people hear Jesus cry, they don't fully understand some of them think Jesus is calling out for Elijah to come and rescue him. One person goes and he fills a sponge with some cheap wine that was probably there for the soldiers to give Jesus a drink. And interestingly, this time Jesus takes the drink offered to him, maybe just so he can say something clearly and be understood. Verse 50, we see that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. John tells us what he said. John 19 verse 30 says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In a loud voice, Jesus declared, It is finished. What was finished? Observation number six. Jesus finished the work. Jesus finished the work. At this point, other than the final act of dying itself, Jesus knows he has finished all the work. There is nothing left that he needs to accomplish. He has fully paid the penalty for the sins of every person God would ever forgive. Jesus has no last righteous thing that he has left undone. He has fully obeyed, fully fulfilled the law of God. He has no further payment to make for sin. He has accomplished everything the Father sent him to do. And even now, he knows he's in the Father's favor. That's why he can say it is finished. So know this, in case you're curious, Jesus did not die and then go suffer in hell for our sins. That work was done on the cross. Jesus is victorious even as he prepares to give up his life. And then Matthew tells us Jesus, look at the wording, yielded up his spirit. Observation number seven, last one. Jesus gave up his spirit. It was not taken from him. Jesus gave up his spirit. It was not taken from him. Jesus was in control. Nobody ripped his life away from Jesus. No cross, no beating caused Jesus' death. Jesus willingly, as an act of volition, as a choice, died. How do we know? What did he do right before he died, according to Matthew verse 27, verse 50? He cried out with what kind of voice? Look at your Bibles. What kind of voice? Loud when men die on crosses, they most often die of asphyxiation. They cannot shout out 
in a loud, clear voice just before death. But you know how we know for sure? Jesus told us, I will willingly die. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own. I've been given authority to lay it down and to take it up again. See John 10, 18. And as the Savior gives up his life, our scene fades. And I could summarize, good pastors do that, but I'd rather ask a question of you. What are you going to do with Jesus? See, the choice before us is simple. You can either come to Jesus and find mercy and be forgiven by God, or you can decide that you would prefer to pay the penalty for your own sins. Now, if you try to live good enough or take it on yourself or pay the penalty for your own sins, you will suffer the wrath of God forever in hell. Because that's how much torment Jesus took for all who he will forgive. But if you let go of the mastery of your life, if you entrust your soul to Jesus, if you believe in him for grace, you will be saved. And I urge you today, as I urge you every week, repent and believe in Jesus for life. And if you do know Jesus, let this remind you of his great glory. Jesus was in control. Jesus withstood the mockery and the brutality of men. Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God for your sins. Jesus fulfilled scripture. And Jesus is worthy of your praise, of your life, of your all. Let's bow together and let's pray. Lord Jesus, We bow, and we are amazed at your death on behalf of sinners. Jesus, we are amazed at a grace that is beyond anything we could ever imagine. At your taking upon yourself a punishment that is beyond what we can fathom. And Jesus, now, now, I pray you would break our hearts and break our wills and shape our lives to honor you. Lord Jesus, you know what we need better than we know. Make us yours in every way. Forgive us, change us, grow us. Let us see your sacrifice and fall to our knees and give you glory. Take our lives. As we survey this glorious cross, may we know that there's no gift we could ever give to repay it, but we can live to honor you for joy. That's what we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.